kind of blacked out a little bit, honestly, you know. Uh, I mean, I just try to treat every kick like it's the same kick, so whether it's an extra point or a one, one, so I knew, I mean, icing me, I mean, I've been iced in high school, I, I don't think that really means anything, that's just 30 more seconds for them to waste, I mean, I'm going to go back out there and, you know, hit the kick, so um, definitely a good feeling though, to see it go through, because, you know, after that first one got blocked, you know, I wasn't sure if I'd get back out there. I was hoping they were going to throw their arms up in there and say I was in. I was looking for the refs. They were walking close together and finally the hands went up and we got to celebrate. The ball game is over here as the Alfred uh, Saxon prevailed by a score of 33 to 27. Fourth overtime in a playoff game as a senior. That's going to be much better than that. It's now time for Around the Nation in Division Three football. And here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. You heard it there, the best hour of the Division Three football season was another thriller on Saturday afternoon as the first round of the playoffs had three games decided on the final snap. One of them is time expired, one in overtime, and another in the fourth overtime. And just like that, our field of 32 is down to a cool 16. And we'll run it all down here on the Around the Nation podcast here for week 12 of the 2016 Division Three football season. The podcast for November 21st, 2016, sponsored by the City of Salem, home of Stag Bowl 44. More info at SalemChampionships.com. And Keith, this is something we talk about every year, right? What a rush it is when these first-round games come to a conclusion. But it seemed a little bit heightened this year. It was a lot heightened this year. Part of the reason being there was no game on the West Coast. So every game either started at noon or 1 p.m. Eastern. Of course, every game is also ending at the same time. Or there's, you know, there were seven games in that first hour and then there were nine in the second hour. So if you're at a game or if you were trying to watch from home, um, it was almost impossible to try to keep up with everything because even though uh, about half the games ended up being not all that competitive. There were uh, the other half where uh, they were in doubt in the fourth quarter. There was um, a point on Saturday, and this was just really stood out, where uh, Mary Harden Baylor was trailing, Alfred was trailing. Those are both one seeds. Mountain Union was tied at Hobart, and so this was all of a sudden. It looked like um, the Division Three playoffs maybe were going to be knocked off their normal axis, and as it turned out. Mary Hart and Baylor rallied. Alfred wins in overtime. Mountain Union scores the last three touchdowns of the game, and, and it turned out fine. But there were still all those amazing finishes, none more amazing than, than the one at St. John's. Yeah, and we're going to talk about that, especially because I was there. Let's start with uh, Alfred. Uh, you know, the Saxons, undefeated, ran the table in one of the top conferences in Division Three. had people arguing for them being in the top ten of our poll. Uh, they get past Bridgewater State in overtime. Uh, we had Wittenberg outlasting Thomas Moore in quadruple overtime on a Will Gingery field goal. And we had uh, St. John's running back Dusty Kruger just barely getting into the end zone, if at all, on the final play of the game to defeat uh, uw Platteville. Uh, those are the three games we're going to spotlight. And, of course, we'll talk about the rest of the bracket as well. But, uh, Keith, let's start with Alfred because this was the one that was uh, most surprising, not one we expected to come down to the final minute. Um, you know, I'm usually on, uh, on this first weekend of games, trying to find people who can help us out by tracking a game or two and, and keep our scoreboard page updated. So I, uh, I tabbed my 14 uh, year old son old enough to be helpful, pretty tech savvy. And I assigned him two games, including this one. Uh, I'm showing him how to mark the game as final, uh, you know, hours before the game. And he said, dad, what if it goes into overtime? I say, Oh, don't worry. That's not going to happen. Uh, yeah, that happened. What happened? 
Well, Bridgewater State was 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 toe to toe with Alfred, and I mean, I think I don't think there was um, anything that they did that was you know, sort of special or remarkable, or outstanding. They played their style of game, which was basically um, you know running the ball with Malik Garrett and then and then trying to push it push it down the field a little bit. Uh, they did throw out in uh, a crucial situation. They direct snapped the ball to, to Malik Garrett, which is uh, again their key running back, and let him run a few plays. He threw a pass. Uh, in the overtime, but other than that, it was it was their pretty much their normal game plan, from what I could tell. Um, Alfred, I, they didn't play like super poorly, where they had you know turnovers upon turnovers, um, but they did need to rally in, in the fourth quarter, and they really struggled um, in in the fourth quarter when it, when it, they got to the red zone. They didn't have a, any problem moving the ball, but uh, they they ended up you know getting inside the ten, having to kick a field goal, getting inside the ten, missing a field goal, and so they're trailing twenty four twenty at that point, and then Tyler Johnson. Uh, the Alfred quarterback just makes this uh, amazing play where the ball snapped, drops a snap, picks it up, scrambles to his left, and and uh, as he scrambles, the receiver you know realizes what's happening and breaks for the end zone, and he throws kind of a ball on the rope uh, to give Alfred a lead. And then even after that, after Alfred had taken the lead, and you think, well, they're at home, they're the one seed, they're in, in theory they're the better team, they're going to start um, you know putting them away at this point. Bridgewater State still had still had two possessions. Uh, in the final three or four minutes, and the the last possession, um, they were able to kick a 44-yard field goal to send it to overtime. And then Alfred just, uh, you know, they came up with an interception in overtime, and then and then punched it in on their possession. The overtime wasn't all that dramatic, but the 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 fourth quarter really was. And this, I think, is what makes this day so exciting, is because there there are games where. Uh, you know they're going to be good games. St. John's Platteville game we knew was going to be good. We we had a feeling on uh, on a couple of the other games that ended up being really close as well. But this one I didn't see coming. I don't know if I would have put this in my you know top fourteen games to watch on <laughs> on Saturday of the sixteen games, and it turned it out being the one I spent the most time uh, taking a look at. Probably behind a couple of those uh, ECAC games and maybe the Max Centennial Bowl games as well. Um, you know, one of the things that we did not really uh, touch on or know much about during the course of the week was uh, Malik Fuentes is uh, part of that running back uh, uh, contingency contingent for uh, Alfred uh, broke his collarbone on a kickoff return late in the game against St. John Fisher. Um, you know, certainly a bit of a factor on Saturday uh, with him being unavailable and has to be considered a factor going forward. Yeah, the the good thing from Alfred's standpoint, of course, is that. They don't move on and play Linfield or Wheaton or somebody in the second round. Their second round game is is Western New England, a team that's eleven and zero, but also uh, probably the the best second round matchup they could have hoped for. So uh, yeah, I, I, I'm certain they missed Fuentes on Saturday in round one, but I I, I think all the credit in this game goes to Bridgewater State um, again being on the road, being the eight seed, going to a one seed, but not being intimidated in in any sort of way, playing. Um, you know, toe to toe with them, and, and you could say the same thing about Hobart against Mount Union, even though Hobart was at home. Um, Linfield having to go to Texas, uh, you know, went there, and I don't know about dominated, but but won that game by two touchdowns. Uh, there was there were some some games that really stood out on Saturday. Um, again, like I said, half the 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 16 first round games were you know teams pulled away pretty competitive pretty easily. Um, you know, the, the Whitewater, Oshkosh of the group, uh, St. Thomas, 43-0. But then there was that other half. There were the three games that ended uh, on the last play. And then there were five games that were in doubt in the fourth quarter. So I thought 
out of the 16, we got a pretty, pretty um, good, good first round. I mean, we haven't, you know, not every first round it has this this much excitement in it. Uh, you know, where games come out of the blue to be really great finishes, and then there there are you know two games going to overtime, one that ends uh, on a kind of disputed final play, and then even you take all that into account, uh, just to, to to step back and look at the first round, everyone who advanced the the whole top ten. In, in our bracket, plus 13, 14, 16, 17, 18, and then Western New England, who was the first team also receiving votes. So basically, you have most of the top 16 advancing. The, the teams that didn't advance, like uh, Wisconsin-Platteville and Harden-Simmons, lost to higher-ranked teams. So even though there was all that drama, basically what we knew going in um, from the top 25 poll turned out to be true. Circling back to something you said a minute or two ago about uh, credit to Bridgewater State, uh, MassCAC has played three playoff games, all of them losses since the conference uh, incorporated football in 2013. But that includes this game, and it includes a 2017 loss to Ithaca. Uh, are we missing the boat on the MassCAC, or is it just that uh, with such a small sample, it's hard to tell? Well, it's it's hard to tell with so few significant opponents during the season. And, and I can tell you, just from watching so much of that game, size-wise, Bridgewater State, uh, matched up with Alfred talent wise they were there and uh, that was a game like like we said we didn't see it as a matchup to watch nor a team that we had picked to win the conference coming into the season you you referenced the the framing of state um, playoff they, they've been competitive in the playoff the past couple seasons and uh, Bridgewater State had to beat them on a on a late kick to to win the conference this season so you know I, I think when you step back and you look at hey what did the MASCAC champion do again now this is a you know maybe the third season in a row where the the champion of that conference went beyond its expectations, but it's it's such small consolation when you're so close to moving on and really moving on to a winnable second game. Yeah, the one game I did not mention was a 44-22 loss by Framingham State at Wesley last year, and you know considering how other teams have performed at Wesley in the past in first round games, uh, that is nothing to sneeze at. Uh, moving on to the Thomas More Wittenberg game, uh, one we knew would be a close game. Obviously, nobody predicts any game. I think goes to four overtimes. That uh, Wittenberg in this one jumps out to a 17 nothing lead. Uh, Thomas More benefits from a bit of a controversial call to get on the board just before halftime. Comes back to tie in regulation, and it becomes a battle of the kickers. Yeah, and really a battle of the defenses and special teams. Um, as nobody gave an inch in overtime, or, or as Adam Turr said, maybe the play calling got conservative. But with the season on the line, uh, the field goal kickers traded makes from 36 and 34. Then each team blocked a field goal attempt in the second overtime. And you can imagine how dramatic that is when, you know, you think you have a chance, they block it now. now um, you're like, oh, well, we got the chance to win it. And then it gets blocked as well. So uh, Wittenberg takes the lead in the third overtime. Thomas Morris, Cole Mathias, a freshman kicker. He makes one from 47, which is a real big deal in, in D3. And this one was probably good from even longer than 47. Uh, he makes that kick to send it to the fourth overtime. But then he misses from 39 at, at the beginning of the fourth over, overtime. And again, you listen to the lengths of these kicks, you realize the possessions start at, at the 25 in yeah. overtime. So you're, you're basically starting with a, with a uh, uh, 40 or 37, 42. Or 32, 42 yard kick. I don't know why I, I missed that for some reason, because uh, it's common, right? It's common knowledge. It's 42 yards to start with. 
So, yeah, some of these are moving back. Some of these are barely moving forward. So uh, Matthias misses from 39 uh, for Thomas Moore in the fourth overtime. And Gingery, as you made, makes his from 37. And, uh, and Wittenberg couldn't even celebrate right away because flags had flown. Thomas Moore was offside. Um, but it was such a way to, to move on for the Tigers. And, and what a way for the Saints to have their season end in a playoff overtime for the second season in a row. Now, I would mention uh, we haven't pulled a lot of uh, audio from these games in terms of uh, dumping in coach and player quotes on this because uh, Adam Turr is going to be writing about uh, these games as uh, one of our playoff features during the course of the week. But we are, of course, going to run through all of them, and uh, including the third game, the one where I was at on Saturday, where St. John's comes back from a 31-20 deficit in the fourth quarter to win 32-31. Uh, Platteville had gone up by two scores with 12 minutes left, and it was the only time either team led by more than four all afternoon. St. John's had thrown a snap over the punter's head, and the, the Pioneers had a short drive to take that lead. Uh, Johnny's come back with a 10-play drive to make it a five-point game, uh, miss on the two-point conversion. Uh, Platteville goes down, uh, drives to the St. John's 44, facing a fourth and one, have a chance to go for it, uh, end up taking a delay a game and punting to pin St. John's deep. And then Jackson Erdman comes out and throws an interception. And, um, you know, at that point, people are probably thinking the game is over. Platteville's sitting pretty. They're in St. John's territory and all that. But they go three and out. St. John's uses all of its timeouts to preserve the clock. They get the ball back with 2.20 left. And that's where the magic is, where it often is up in Collegeville. Uh, St. John's goes 79 yards in the next 10 plays, uh, including a spike, converts two fourth downs, all the usual two-minute drill drill just to get Will Gillick inside the one-yard line where uh, Anthony Metallo makes a potential game-saving tackle to drag him down literally inches short of the end zone. First and goal from one, Johnny spike it again with 10 seconds to go. Uh, twice, Erdman looks for uh, Jared Street in the end zone, second and third down, and with three seconds left, the run play where uh, Dusty Kruger may or may not have gotten in. And I watched that play over and over yesterday and this morning, and uh, or Sunday morning, I should say, as you'll be probably listening to this on Monday morning. Uh, Kruger's on the offensive lineman's back and is over the goal line when the official definitively rules, but that's about six seconds after the, the play was dead or, or ended. So what we'll never know is whether he was in before his knee touched. They're just the, the camera angle we have is one camera angle and it's, it's really inconclusive. Um, I guess I would be convinced or encouraged by the fact that the official that ruled was so definitive, but from the Platteville point of view, none of the other officials made any kind of ruling. And it took long enough that if you watch that clip, Platteville defensive players start celebrating. They just start running off the field because they see there's no touchdown ruling. And, you know, you don't expect the official to rule no. If they just don't rule anything, that is, that that is in effect, the ruling, or at least that's the way the Platteville players were uh, were interpreting it. So a couple of them ran off the field with their fingers in the air. And, you know, they're not looking back, so they may not have even seen the touchdown ruling, but certainly uh, heard the, the Johnny's crowd uh, go crazy. And, look, it's, it's, a, it's a run from the I formation to the right-hand side. They they didn't they were out of timeouts with 10 seconds left uh, first first down inside uh, the one as you mentioned or at the one so they had two chances to throw the ball and they got both of those play they run both of those plays and only took seven seconds off the clock so the last snap three seconds now um, because it's the last play of the game the run is is an option they uh, they go back to the I formation handoff to Kruger to the right hand side uh, he's hit about one yard from the goal line and he falls down. And it's just anybody's guess. I mean, really, the only people who ever know whether he was in uh, was Kruger himself and the two guys who hit him. And even even they may not know. 
I tell you, um, two other things. Oh, gosh, actually, there's a lot of other things, but you know, we could spend ten more minutes talking about this game, and I'll try to keep it to two or three. Um, one of which, of course, is the extra point was never attempted. Uh, the uh, the officials ran off the field. You know, all the team, the both teams were still there, but the officials ran off the field. Uh, that extra point, by rule, must be attempted, or at least uh, you know, the the play must be snapped because uh, Platteville would have the opportunity to uh, block a kick and return it for a defensive two-point conversion and win the game. Now, of course, St. John's certainly doesn't actually have to attempt an extra point. All they have to do is snap the ball and kneel on it. But that is something that by rule had to be done, and it was not done in this case. Um, the other thing, uh, and that was reminiscent of uh, in 2011, Augsburg at uh, St. John's in that same end zone, uh, one on the final play of the game, and the officials actually brought the teams back out 20 to 30 minutes after the game was over to uh, go through the formality of kneeling down on that extra point. Uh, the other thing that it reminded me of, Keith, is I don't know if you remember the 2008 Tommy Johnny game. Uh, St. Thomas uh, with uh, it has a play at the goal line where they are ruled just short with uh, about uh, a minute or so to go. Uh, that was on third down, uh, and on fourth down, they uh, fumble the ball, and St. John's returns it uh, the other way and you know, then uh, slides down and kneels on it or is tackled, and the final score uh, is St. John's winning 12-9. to uh, you know, uh, Those are a couple of things that, are, that were pretty reminiscent and were definitely talked about after that game on Saturday. And I guess the bigger takeaway or another takeaway from, from the, you know, the Platteville perspective is, is um, that they obviously deserve to be in the game. They were by most accounts, the the last team in the field or the most controversial team to put in at eight and two, third place in their conference, but uh, had close losses to Wisconsin Oshkosh and to Wisconsin Whitewater. Um, St. John's wasn't a conference champion either, but um, they, their only loss was was a fairly close loss, 33-21, but they were in the game in the fourth quarter to St. Thomas. So these, this was a matchup of, of two Pool C teams. Uh, Pool C went uh, four and two, in the first round, and and obviously they were going to win one and lose one in the St. John's Platteville game. Uh, Harden Simmons was the only other Pool C team to lose, but the other Pool C teams, the at-large teams, were uh, were Oshkosh um, and, and all the other teams that that were uh, in in Pool C, including Mount Union. Um, did you know deserve to be there? And I thought Platteville um, definitely deserved to be there. And if you want to go back a little further than that final sequence, there's probably at least one play. I mean, any one-point game, there's probably several plays they could kick themselves for. But on that final drive, there was a throw uh, on the on the right sideline. Erdman um, yeah. put it, laid it up way short, and uh, the the defensive back probably just his momentum had him overrun it, and the receiver came back to get it. You know, fielded it almost like a punt, and that ended up being a huge gain at a point in the game where where Platteville. Uh, you know, seems to have the advantage because St. John's had so much field to cover. And then all of a sudden, St. John's is in the red zone. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, Emmendorfer, the coach for Platteville, talked about a couple of those things after the game. But, uh, you know, in a, um, I guess, in a seemingly in a frame of mind where, you know, accepting of it and understanding that his uh, team performed well and did uh, and did well on a national stage. Um, and I, uh, I, I, I was pretty happy with, uh, you know, just as an observer and as a fan of Division Three football, as to how Platteville took that loss, especially considering, um, you know, the the last second nature of it and the matter of inches, centimeters, millimeters that it took up. 
Um, I would mention too. Uh, we've seen, uh, we've shown one angle of that uh, final play. We'll have a couple more angles to show you. You may see them Sunday night. You may see them Monday. Not anywhere near conclusive either. Um, it'll be one of those uh, one of those questions and a, a play people will talk about for a long time. You know, uh, the the real funny thing about that too is people who were were St. John's backers said they clearly they had a clear view of it and he was definitely in and <laughs> and the folks who are watching and this is just judging from folks on Twitter uh who are watching and and were rooting for Platteville of course were like he definitely wasn't in so uh there it, it, it seems like there's no conclusive evidence uh for any of us and uh you know we may this will this will go down as a memorable finish for for both programs and and for this season um but you know it, it's it's funny that that uh, however you wanted that play to, to end is is how you view it because uh, because it was so ambiguous I guess the um, so I shot that video and immediately as, as quickly as I could uploaded it to YouTube I didn't even really review it very closely frame by frame to take a look at it when we went down to the post game news conference uh, then I blew it up on my screen and and kind of slowed it down as much as I could. Uh, and there were a couple of St. John's people there waiting for uh, you know uh, conversations to start. And they said after looking at it, they felt better about having uh, you know having had the ruling go in their favor because they weren't too sure about it when it took place in real time. Yeah, it, it's I mean it's just something we're gonna remember, and it's a great playoff moment. Not so great for the pioneers, but uh, but for anyone who was watching, and, and for fans of the Johnnies, and and those are certainly some of the best fans in D three. Uh, what a moment! What a memory! As we go to break, it's a good time to mention that the Around the Nation podcast is sponsored by the City of Salem, home of Stag Bowl 44. The Division Three football championship game is Friday night, December 16th in Salem, Virginia. And you can find more information at SalemChampionships.com. Less than a month away, a friend of mine shared a photo of, uh, of hers at Salem Stadium on Friday afternoon, Keith, and it made me realize how close we are to having this season all wrapped up. Wow. Uh, one of the things I like about the Stag Bowl's long run in Salem is that the organizing committee keeps kind of raising the bar in terms of the experience for the student-athlete. Yeah, every year they, the, the Salem folks seem to add something, and sometimes it's something for the fan experience, but a lot of times it's for the student-athletes. And uh, especially if we end up having a season um, this year, you know, Mount Union and Whitewater uh, still alive in the tournament, and, and they've they've – been before, although each year, you know, there are new new guys on the team. And, and so the experience is new to all of them. Um, they'd be pretty familiar with it. But, uh, you know, if somebody different gets to Salem, they're really going to appreciate being taken care of uh, just the way the the committee um, or, or the folks in Salem put, you know, they, they put up for you uh, the night before in the hotel. There's always an event going on. There's a there's a, uh, a dinner that honors the players and, and sort of uh, lets the two teams be in the same room together and meet and remember why they're all there, um, you know, as good students and, and, and kind of leaders on their campuses before they go back and, and get ready to, to knock heads on Friday night. Um, you know, they're, they're everything from host families that, that take care of the teams to just the way Salem really tries to make it a big time experience for, uh, for, for the D3 players. And, you know, there's not going to be 25,000 people in the stands, but the the stands will be fairly full and it'll be a pretty packed raucous atmosphere it'll be on ESPN which is always a huge deal for uh for for D3 players and and that's the time when other other D3 programs tune in to watch just cuz it's the Stag Bowl so it's it's a huge experience for uh 
for um, for all the players who get a chance to go down there. So there's 16 teams who still have a chance to be those two that get honored by the city of Salem. We hope to see lots of Division Three fans in Salem. Uh, get more information on hotels, uh, area accommodations, and the like, as well as a, a link to get uh, tickets at SalemChampionships.com. And we're up to our game ball segment. Uh, and for my game ball, I'm going with the defense, the, the defense, especially the pass defense from North Central, as they held Rose Holman quarterback Austin Swenson to 103 yards passing, 20 for 42 for 103 yards, which is uh, you know about uh, a little over two and a half yards, or maybe even under two and a half yards per attempt on Saturday in that uh, 41 to seven win for the Cardinals. Uh, the pass defense, especially uh, with. Ten passes broken up, nine different guys breaking up passes, so you you know that means it comes from all over the field. Uh, Jeremy Nicholas had a, a pair of them, but uh, nine different guys with pass breakups, and a team that we talked about uh, having a prolific uh, you know, a prolific uh, group up front in terms of sacks, so one of the leaders in sacks over the course of the season. Uh, maybe they just sat back and uh, let Swenson throw and decided to uh, disrupt it that way, but uh, what an incredible performance, because think about the number of times, Keith, that we've talked about Swenson over the course of his career as a Rose Holman quarterback and some of the great numbers he's put up. They really, limited is not the word for it. There needs to be a, an entirely different word for what happened in that game. Well, my game ball goes to someone who did, who, who a team, a unit, a side of the ball who did something entirely different as well. Co forced nine Monmouth turnovers and needed every last one of them in a 21-14 first round win. It was uh, one of the games we expected maybe to be pretty close, especially because Monmouth had, had a pretty solid defense this season. Um, but it wasn't one of the marquee games, I guess, on on Saturday because so many eyes were were on. Uh, Linfield, Harden, Simmons, Mount Union on the road, and, and then St. John's and Platteville. Um, it was kind of one of these under-the-radar great games, and, and what we missed about it was was uh, Co five interceptions, recovered four fumbles, including one on the uh, second-half kickoff. So I can't give the game ball strictly to the defense. Got to include special teams there. And then on top of that, Co didn't turn the ball over at all. Uh, they went with a fairly conservative game plan. It's been something they've used in other big games this season, although not uh, not in every game. Gavin Glenn uh, threw the ball just 26 times, only 72 yards passing for Coe. But Trevor Heitland, 50 rushing attempts for 251 yards. Um, but none of it matters if if they don't come up with nine turnovers. You look at the uh, uh, the drive summary if you want to care to dig deep into that box score and Mammoth. Um, doesn't even punt in this game until like the, the second half because every one of their possessions and they, they move the ball up and down the field, but every one of their possessions uh, ends in a turnover. They had 422 yards of offense, about a, almost a hundred more yards than co, but uh, just the nine turnovers. I mean, you're, you're almost never going to win a game. The fact that it was even 21, 14 is, is pretty amazing. Yeah. I cannot imagine. Uh, I cannot imagine a scenario in that case where that goes down like that. That's a, uh, that's just craziness. Um, you know, we're not going to go through uh, a categorical type rundown. We're going to go kind of bracket by bracket. Uh, you know, we've touched on some of the big games already, but uh, these are not the only games that happened on Saturday and not the only important games that happened on Saturday. So kind of circling around the bracket and starting in the top left with uh, the Mary Harden-Baylor bracket. Uh, one of the games we definitely need to focus on a little bit more, Keith, is that Harden-Simmons-Linfield game. Uh, so Linfield, you know, they... Uh, maybe some people are a little put out uh, by them having to travel for uh, to Texas for what now turns out to be back-to-back -back weeks. 
um, and they uh, get off to a little bit of a slow start. Uh, but, you know, the, the defense has a fantastic finish in this game. And, of course, uh, Linfield goes on to win 24 to 10. Yeah, and maybe because Linfield is, uh, you know, Sam Riddle, such an accomplished quarterback, and their their offense is so um, high powered with with guys like Reed Peterson and Spencer Payne, names that we we've, we've known for a few years now. Uh, you almost forget uh, how good they are on defense, or at least how good they were Saturday. They held Harden Simmons to 15 yards rushing. They had six sacks of Ryan Breeden, and and really, uh, oh, and and you know, kept them off the board. Harden Simmons. Uh, takes a 10-7 lead with 6-27 in the second quarter and then doesn't score again in that game. Um, really a fairly dominant defensive performance and, and something that if you take the, you know, again, this is always sort of dicey, but, you know, you, Harden-Simmons and Mary Harden-Baylor, uh, their game this season was a one-score game. It was 20-15. to So if you, if you take that to mean Harden-Simmons is basically the same strength as Mary Harden-Baylor, well then... It, it makes you wonder about that that 66-27 Mary Harden Baylor Linfield game back in in week two or three yeah. in the season, and what it's going to be next week when Linfield has to go back from Oregon to Texas and play at Mary Harden Baylor. You know, I, I mean, you just have to imagine Linfield's going to be better that they've been kind of smarting from that game uh, since it happened, and, and they they want to get another shot at it. And Pat, you were there, you remember it, it, that game got got kind of got away from Linfield in the second half. It wasn't that bad of a game. No, um, we're going to talk a little bit about more uh, more about that later in the podcast. That's uh, our Twitter question, so uh, we'll focus on that in a, a little bit. But uh, I would I would agree, and we've mentioned that a, <laughs> a couple of times. Um, elsewhere in this uh, bracket, Keith, uh, you know, Wheaton defeats Huntington, uh, North Central over Rose Holman. Wrote, uh, the North Central Rose Holman game. I think everybody on our side who uh, predicted that game pretty much had the the right character of the game. Um, the the Wheaton Huntington game. I think people thought uh, Huntington was going to put some points on the board, and um, they they really did not. Yeah, I thought both uh, Rose Holman and Huntington would be able to score on on Wheaton and North Central. Not that uh, you know that they would win. These are two powerful teams from the from the CCIW, fairly strong conference, but. Um, the fact that Huntington didn't have any success, I think, uh, was a bit of a surprise. And part of it is is we knew the matchup in this game was going to be Wheaton's defensive line, which is a, a really outstanding defensive line against uh, Huntington's high-powered offense. Huntington uh, doesn't get doesn't score a touchdown until the third quarter of this game. Wheaton um, didn't really have a whole lot of trouble with the with the Huntington offense. Um, they only passed for 178 yards. Uh, which is uh, way below their average. So I think uh, even though they only had two sacks, I, I thought the the defensive line was going to be a much more, uh, you know, if Wheaton wins this game running away or going away, it would be because of the defensive line. Uh, it really was a was a total domination and uh, kind of reminds us that we we I don't know if we slept on Wheaton this season, but their results just weren't uh, all that eye opening, and you get so used to a certain level of success from certain teams that you forget how big of a gap it is between, or at least I'll, I'll just say this for me, I forget a little bit how big of a gap it is between some of the other great teams in the country within their conference or within their region and just how good uh, the two CCIW teams are. Wheaton, especially defensively this season. Uh, so there's a, uh, a rematch, obviously, in both halves or both parts of this quadrant or both pods, whatever group you want to call here in the, uh, the second round. Uh, Talking about the Wheaton North Central game uh, for a moment, uh, North Central won the Little Brass Bell uh, earlier this season, winning 35-25. It 
did seem like, as you said, uh, you could kind of slept on Wheaton because we had a hard time uh, determining whether Wheaton had really found itself. And, and maybe we don't even necessarily know this until next week, but it's taken a little while for the uh, for the offense to come around, at least, whereas uh, defensively, of course, they've been uh, stellar all season. Yeah, and, and Wheaton was one of the teams. Um, they, they didn't do it certainly as long as Mountain Union or Wesley, uh, where they were, or, or even Whitewater, which is still, you know, back and forth between quarterbacks uh, right now. Um, they were one of the teams that was kind of trying to find their quarterback at the beginning of the season. And uh, some of their results, the scores were a little, you know, just not what you would expect a, a Wheaton team. So, um, yeah, we were, we were kind of stunned. And we waited for that that little brass bell game, the first one, um, to to get a sense of, of what the two teams um, we're going to be this season and, and North central wins that one. It, that was kind of the, the game. We really started to take notice of, uh, of Brock Rutter, the freshman quarterback for North central. He threw three touchdown passes in that game. Um, and so we, I think even at that point, still didn't quite know what to make of Wheaton. Um, but, but the 45, 10 against Huntington in round one, uh, really impressive dominance. Moving on to the Alfred bracket, uh, where we've already talked about the Alfred Bridgewater State game, Keith. But uh, of course, the other game uh, everybody had their eye on in terms of uh, national interest was the game between Hobart and Mount Union, a game which uh, you referenced earlier on in the podcast was tied in the fourth quarter. Mount Union, of course, goes on to score all the rest of the points. Uh, but Hobart, uh, you know, well, we, we ranked them 19. Uh, you know, it's not one of the elite teams in Division Three football this season. Uh, and, uh, you know, maybe not, uh, a, maybe not a great test for Mount Union, but, uh, you know, at least they got something out of it. Look, the test for Mountain Union was going on the road, not having to play or not being able to play in alliance in the first round. It's been a long time since a Mountain Union team has had to do that. And it didn't start off so well for them either, but they got that running game going. They got the defense playing a little bit better in the second half, came up with a couple of big interceptions and uh, and pulled away. Uh, it was 21-21, five minutes left in the third quarter, ended up being a 38-21 game. So if you didn't watch or pay attention to any of that game and and frankly i didn't get to pay as much attention to it as i would have liked but um you know if you just look at the final score 38 21 is kind of a fairly fairly typical mountain union score especially if you factor in them being on the road but it really wasn't a typical game for them and they had to kind of dig deep uh put together two 10 play scoring drives in the second half uh one of them ending in a field goal to give them a 31 21 lead and then that's when uh hobart by that point, their, their running game had been mostly shut down, had to take to the air, and uh, that, that's when Mountain Union came up with uh, the big interceptions. The the takeaways, you know, the final um, box score of this game, and again, it, it, the, the first half was a little different than the, than the second half where Mountain Union started to control things late in the game, but uh, Hobart threw the ball 57 times with Shane Sweeney. Mountain Union, a much more efficient 20 of 29 from Dom Davis, uh, ran the ball a little, a lot better. Uh, 162, 166 to 82 for a little more than four yards of carry. Hobart held to about three yards of carry. Turnover is not a huge factor in the game, but those Mountain Union did have two big picks late. Really amazing stats to me uh, from this one. Um, Hobart was six of seven on third, on fourth down. You know, eight of twenty on third down. That seems like a normal number, but they they went for it seven times on fourth down, got it six times. So they were they were uh, as they had been all year. A, a clutch team staying alive, uh, but just didn't have enough in the end. <laughs> Shane Sweetie, uh, two more years as quarterback for uh, Hobart. So uh, have fun upstate New York uh, dealing with that guy for another couple years. 
Um, let's see. Western New England defeated Husson. That's the fourth win for the NEFC in uh, in the history of Division Three playoffs. Two of them against the ECFC. But uh, you know, Keith, as we expected, a, a pretty competitive game and a pretty entertaining one. Yeah, I'm a little mad because when we did quick hits, I actually picked Western New England, and then I started to think more about that Husson Alfred game early in the season, and uh, and then switched my pick, and of course, uh, you know, Western New England uh, ends up pulling away late in that one. That was another one of the games that uh, the final score didn't look it looked um, like it was a little bit more dominant than it ended up being. Western New England 44-27, but uh, they outscored Husson 20-6 in the fourth quarter. It was a tight game in the fourth. Um, and the the big thing for Western New England for me was I got to watch them when they played Salve Regina, which is their big uh, regular season game, and uh, was kind of more impressed with them on paper than I was actually watching them. And uh, they they really earned it on uh, on Saturday, and uh, I guess they earned their respect back, so to speak. Especially when you put together um, you, you know a couple of big drives in the in the fourth quarter, they they uh, they scored on a short fumble recovery. Uh, to get them to stretch their three-point lead to ten-point lead, uh, it was an eight-yard return, and then uh, and then they had to put together some scoring drives in the fourth quarter and really grind one out. And now they've they've got the opportunity for all the underdogs uh, on Saturday, but especially Western New England uh, going to Alfred, Alfred team that looked fairly beatable on Saturday. Western New England has a chance to be now not just a Sweet 16 team, but but a Final 18. Yeah, absolutely. Not uh, not at all out of the realm of possibility. Uh, the other round of 16 game in that bracket, of course, is Mountain Union going to Johns Hopkins, which, uh, you know, Johns Hopkins has gone to Mountain Union um, in the past. Uh, people are talking about uh, this being a pretty good Johns Hopkins team. I, I saw them all the way back, uh, literally, I think it was on September 1st, anyway, uh, the uh, the first night of the Division Three football season. Um, so I'm not sure anything I can take away from that that's going to prove true to you know to them 12 weeks later uh but it'll be interesting to see how that matchup uh you know plays out yeah the big takeaway for me from watching johns hopkins against uh randolph macon in the first round a 42 21 win for the blue jays was um how how quickly they got up the field they vertically they were uh they were fairly um I guess just I'll just say effective. Like they they got up the field, up the seam, on the sidelines. Uh, they hit the tight end, and you know usually Johns Hopkins. I think their offense is a little more based around the running back. Um, but I thought that they got up the field uh, really well. And when you contrast that with with the way the the Mountain Union defensive backs came up with a couple big plays uh, against Hobart, that seems to be to me the the initial uh, matchup to watch. I don't think this is is going to be an easy win f- for Mountain Union. Again, you know, just off name recognition, people say, "Oh, Mountain Union should go to Johns Hopkins and blow them out." I don't think that's the case at all. If you didn't learn anything from watching Mountain Union, uh, have to dig deep in in the second half to beat Hobart, you should have learned that. And then uh, Johns Hopkins not has one thing that I think um, a, a lot of teams don't have in, in this tournament, and that's an experienced quarterback in John Germano. Looking at the uh, next bracket, the St. Thomas bracket, of course, we talked uh, extensively about St. John's Platteville. We've talked a little bit about Co-Monmouth already. Um, you know, uh, going back to Trevor Heitland, for example, for a minute from Co. this is a guy who, uh, you know, is not his first 50-carry game of the season, um, and they'd eased up on his workload a bit uh, the past couple weeks after he had, uh, had, had run 
50 times. I think it was against Wartburg, but uh, you know, now I'm, I'm not in a position to be quoted on this. Uh, going in against uh, St. Thomas, obviously, if you're an offense that uh, struggled to get to 21 points and did not make good on eight of those nine turnovers, they were unable to convert those into points, it definitely does not bode well going forward. Sure. And, I, I mean, I guess take the, the big takeaway from that corner of the bracket Besides the the Cole Monmouth game, since I, I feel like we've we've talked about that one, uh, St. Thomas and, and North Central, you just I mean not North Central Northwestern, um, those those are the kind of games and same same as is in the case of Whitewater and, and Lakeland, where you you see the difference between a really dominant D three program and and a team that's good within its conference but just doesn't have uh, the, the guys to necessarily match up. Um, you see the dominance usually up front at this at this point in the season. And the rushing totals in both those games, I think, really bear it out. Uh, St. Thomas rushed for 208 and held Northwestern to 36 yards rushing. And uh, very similar numbers in, uh, in in the Whitewater game. Uh, they out they outrushed Lakeland 263 to 27. So I think those are the, the games where you, where you really see the, um, the dominance. And Unlike, say, Linfield or Mount Union, which kind of had to earn their wins in the first round, um, a team like St. Thomas, which earned its its spot as a one seed and, and got this first round game, you know, was was able to to take its foot off the gas a little bit, uh, let the backup quarterback play, let some other guys get carries, and uh, and and kind of save up for what's going to be, uh, even if the co game in the second round is not is tough but not super tough. They have, they just have a tough route coming out of that side of the bracket. You know, whether it's the winner St. John's, Oshkosh after that, and then you know could be could be Whitewater, John Carroll, somebody after that. St. Uh, St. Thomas probably uh, benefited from from not having to, to go to the wire in round one. Let's talk about uh, uh, St. Thomas. You mentioned giving guys a rest, and we talked a little bit about the Whitewater game. Uh, Whitewater on Saturday, uh, you know, uh, Cam Maley got the start at running back, was uh, pretty effective early on, then left the game early and was uh, replaced by uh, yet another running back who uh, did uh, fantastically in relief. Uh, I'm talking, of course, about the uh, performance by Josh Ringelberg, 27 carries for 142 yards and three touchdowns, Uh, but also Chris Nelson, Started a quarterback because yep. uh, Cole Wilbur got hurt against Stout last week. Um, left the game, did not play on Saturday. They, um, Whitewater gave uh, its guys a respite. Whitewater really thin at running back already. Um, you know, Ringelberg would be the I think the third or fourth primary guy now at this point. Um, and you know, Nelson did pretty well for what they asked of him. Yeah, he uh, threw the ball 15 times on Saturday, and remember, of the two, Cole Wilbur's the the guy whose arm they trust a little more. Nelson, they uh, you know they like his leadership. He's the senior. They they call run plays for him. Uh, he was just eight of 15 for 214 yards, three touchdown passes, and a pick on Saturday. Uh, didn't have to to work too hard again with just the 15 attempts, um, but I think that's how Whitewater prefers it too, and uh, it probably just goes to show. How how good they are uh, on the offensive line when when uh, you know Maley can get uh, the first you know eleven carries early in the game and then you bring in Ringelberg and uh, he he carries the ball twenty seven times for one hundred forty two yards three touchdowns uh, averages more than five yards a carry it almost says well it doesn't matter who you have at running back for Whitewater as long as you're running behind that line I think it it does matter to some degree but uh, but again Chris Nelson taking care of the ball. And, uh, and and Whitewater handing off a lot. Uh, you know, we're going to see that probably next week and maybe the week after. Uh, 
Uh, regardless of, of whether Cole Wilber is back or not. Yeah. Uh, one thing I do want to point out, though, for Lakeland before we uh, go away from this game, Michael Whitley, you may have heard this uh, kid's name. We've talked about him before, I think when he was a freshman a couple of years ago. Uh, he's the quarterback for Lakeland, uh, threw for 339 yards and three touchdowns. He's the reason why this game was close. Uh, it was 45-15 going into the fourth quarter. Uh, and that had included a pick six by Lakeland just to get to that point. But uh, they uh, score a couple of touchdowns, uh, one early, one midway through the fourth quarter. Whitley, though, a special player, and he's got one more year left. Yeah, and, and quarterbacks can lift a, a program in D3 um, you know, to heights kind of beyond, you know, if you're a seven or eight win team and then you have this great quarterback, it can really propel you to be a nine, ten win team. And if you're coming from a conference like the NAC, uh, where where Lakeland is, they could use a, a much better regular season so they can get a seed in the playoffs where they don't have to go to Whitewater or St. Thomas in the first round. That really should be the focus for for you know, obviously those teams are focused on just winning the conference. But if they could get if you could have a nine win season or a ten win season and and you know you you bring back a star quarterback, it's certainly a possibility and a goal. Um, you could maybe get into one of these first round games like Monmouth and Co where you have a chance to win and advance into the next round. Elsewhere in this bracket, Keith, uh, let's see, two other games that we haven't really talked about yet. Uh, Wesley and, and Stevenson. Uh, Stevenson making its first playoff appearance. A lot of people talked about uh, Stevenson brought a ton of fans down, which is great. It's great to see excitement from a, a new campus uh, in Division Three football brought down their band. Uh, but Wesley brought the offense, brought the rushing game. Yeah, and... and Jamar Baynard is a player who's who's been on the radar for us since he's a freshman. But, you know, as long as Joe Callahan had been the star there, uh, the passing game had gotten so much attention. And then this year, because they been they took a while to find their quarterback. Now they they settled on uh, on Nick Falkenberg um, and they have a couple of outstanding receivers in, in Bryce Shade and Alex Kemp. You spend so much time again for a far, a far from the program, you know, thinking about. These are the Wesley stars. We almost forgot about uh, how good Jamar Baynard was, but he delivered on Saturday against Stevenson, and uh, you know, with a with a 265-yard rushing game, three touchdowns, and then you add Bryce Shade's 12 catches to that. Uh, Roderick Kane had four sacks on defense. You just feel like Wesley's starting to find itself now. You know, Two-loss season really uncharacteristic for them, um, and they have a big opportunity now to go to to John Carroll, um, which which. Is a champion of Mount Union's conference, but it's not the same as going to Mount Union. Uh, and, and Wesley has a chance to sort of write, you know, to, to do what it always does, I guess, is it be a, a team that's a factor in the playoffs. Um, but, you know, they're still kind of a team that we're like, have they found themselves yet or have they not? Certainly look like it uh, against Stevenson. Yeah. Um, Falkenberg, a junior, of course, with his first year starting a quarterback. Uh, John Carroll with uh, Anthony Meglin, a freshman, obviously, in his first year starting a quarterback. Uh, John Carroll defensively, of course, another standout game on Saturday. Uh, limited Olivet to 188 yards on offense. Scored on defense it'll, it'll, or on special teams. It'll be interesting to see uh, how that matchup looks because that's, a, that's a, I think, a pretty much a toss-up, I would say. Yeah, it's probably one of the games that we have to keep an eye on closely in round two, one of the better games uh, of round two. The, the thing about John Carroll, too, is, we, you know, the def defense gave, you know, gave him an opportunity to win at Mount Union. Defense was outstanding against Olivet. And if you, you heard Tom Arth in the post game, he was talking about how, uh, you know, how Olivet played as hard a as anyone else. They uh, they played all season and whether that's that's 
coach speak or not, it, it sort of means that um, sometimes these teams just they just not a, physically not a good match. The effort is there. The 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 scheme may be there. This week is not going to be the case. This week, John Carroll, Wesley, similar type of athletes. So the teams are really going to have to dig deep. And, and if John Carroll can play the kind of defense that it's played the past couple weeks, they'll be in good shape. But I think Wesley, again, hitting its stride offensively. And when they're they're not hitting its stride, it, they found out this week that they can always go back to Jamar Bayard. we come down to the end of our podcast for this week uh we turn to the airwaves no we turn to twitter where uh you know as always we look for a question from a fan and this is from brook baseball that's at brook baseball b-r-o-o-k-e uh what do you think will be the difference in the second mary harden baylor linfield matchup and uh you know that's a great question because i'm sure linfield has some ideas of things they'd like to do differently you know such as hanging on to the football um, but I think for Linfield, it's a matter of coming out a little faster, being prepared to play at the speed of the game at which uh, UMHB is. Even though Linfield shot itself in the foot on a few occasions the first time they met up, uh, the fact remains, you know, from my observation when I was there, the Wildcats just were not on the same level, visibly slower. Um, it won't be crazy hot and humid at game time this uh, time around for sure. So it'll be interesting to see if that changes how things go down too. The big difference to me is on the Mary Harden-Baylor side. I think they have to start a lot better than they started on Saturday against Redlands. They trailed in that game uh, into the second half, and it wasn't just like Redlands scored one lucky long touchdown. Uh, Redlands led that game 21-16. Mary Harden-Baylor got a safety, then uh, was able to put together some scoring drives. Um, they traded kickoff returns, and and you know Mary Harden-Baylor kind of did does what it does, which is wear teams down over the course of a game. I just don't think they can afford to to start slowly. Uh, against Linfield on Saturday. This is Linfield's not going to lack for inspiration by any means. Uh, um, Linfield also really moved the ball well against Harden Simmons and uh, and missed a couple of field goals in that game. So they probably could have been a, a bigger margin than 24-10. I, I don't have a great feel for what's going to be different, but I, I just imagine it's not going to be a, a, a blowout like the first one. Your two-minute drill begins now. All right, I got the clock started uh, on the two-minute drill. So uh, the coaching carousel obviously is in full swing. Keith and everybody, uh, eight teams, as we mentioned last week, went 0-10 this season, and at least two of them are going to have new coaches next year. Stacy Hairston resigned at Wilmington. Hunter Sims, who we had on this podcast over the summer, is going to step down to focus on his uh, AD position at Howard Payne. Yeah, Hairston may well be a great coach, but uh, we're never going to know for sure at Wilmington. That program is, has been struggling for a long time, and this is one of the one of the tougher assignments in D3. You're not just taking taking over a, a not-so-good program, but you have to play Mountain Union and John Carroll every season. 1-39 in his four years. Previously, they were 2-38 in the four years before that. They haven't had multiple wins in a season, haven't even had a two-win season since, uh, out of my head, I think it's 2008. Um the uh, let's see. Uh, also this week, uh, Jim Margraff, congratulations, head coach at Johns Hopkins uh, on his 200th career win on Saturday. Yeah, congrats. Woo. I, I got some things here that uh, might have your name on them. I don't know which part of the rundown is what now. Um, I, I think we should, you know, it's um, we get so sucked into the first round of the playoffs, rightfully so. Yeah. Um, there are a couple of bowl games that, that go on in uh, in this week 12. Uh, the ECAC games had some a couple of interesting matchups because um, 
St. John Fisher and Frostburg were were two teams that uh, were were on the bubble and left out of the field. Uh, they met in a uh, in an ECAC game and and uh, Frostburg State crushed in that one, 38-14. Um, uh, Washington Jefferson had a had a good finish and uh, they did a great job from uh, from Franklin Field in Philadelphia, kind of um, you know sharing videos and and other experiences on Twitter, so you could kind of see what the ECAC thing was like without uh, without being there. Um, and then uh, Salisbury also uh, also won a game in that. Okay, clearly not every two-minute drill gets into the end zone. We, uh, of course, have uh, stuff coming up next week. I I think there's some more football games, which is good. Uh, Keep an eye out for uh, feature stories throughout the week. Also, everybody, have a happy and safe Thanksgiving if you're driving. Uh, you know, travel safely. If you're flying, perhaps to a football game, have a great trip uh, as well. Uh, and don't forget to uh, check out d3football.com. If you noticed, um, there was maybe you did notice, uh, we changed the design of d3football.com this week. Uh, so hopefully you picked up on that. And um, I know that if you were uh, watching it on your mobile device, especially on Saturday at games, I think it was a much better experience for you. That's what we're going for. If you find any issues, uh, you know, let us know. We're uh, still in a position to fix some of these things because then we have to roll it out to uh, four other websites as well. So we'd uh, D3 football wasn't meant to be the guinea pig, but uh, we needed uh, we needed to, you guys to have a good mobile website experience uh, for the first round of the playoffs. So that's why you guys got it first. Keith, what you think of the what you think of the new website? Well, I think it makes a big difference. Um, if you remember the old mobile layout, it was oh. just a kind of a plain blue background and very minimal information. At the at the time we live in now, um, where you, there are there are literally people at games and then trying to watch the other game on their phone, you just have to have a, a clean mobile experience. You have to be able to find the things that you need. And I thought it was a big Im- improvement. Um, I again this round, the next round, and and maybe even the the round of eight, we're all going to be at games, but also trying to keep an eye on these other games. And uh, and that, that scoreboard is indispensable. The video audio links indispensable. I mean, uh, I actually went through a, a point on Saturday where I watched the end of the the Alfred Bridgewater State game and then immediately went to the the overtimes of Thomas Moore and Wittenberg and then immediately went to uh, St. John's and Platteville in the, in the final two minutes. So it's going to be like that next week and the week after. And uh, it's great to be able to, to, to find everything you need quickly. Follow us on Twitter, of course, if you don't already, at D3Football. That's where we kind of direct you, especially to uh, you know those games that are coming down to the final minutes on a playoff Saturday like that. It's like, this is the game you have to go to next You know when the game is over. And that path that Keith followed is uh, exactly where we were kind of leading people to on Saturday. Uh, and this was Around the Nation podcast number 163 for the week of November 21st, 2016. Thanks for listening and tune in to the rest of our coverage throughout the week. If you like our podcast, please consider rating it. It will help other Division Three football fans find it. Thanks for following Division Three football on D3Football.com. Thanks to the folks at the City of Salem for their sponsorship of this week's podcast. Find out more about the hosts of Stag Bowl 44 and a host of other Division Three national championships, including uh, men's and women's soccer coming up in the next couple of weeks. Uh, you can find information about that at SalemChampionships.com. 
on the executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Thanks to our guests for their time on this edition of the show. And, of course, to the creator of Around the Nation on D3Football.com and my co-host, that's Keith McMillan. You can catch us every week from now through December 19th, monthly in the offseason. And always remember to use the D3FB hashtag on your tweets and Instagram posts. I think, too, you know, show up at Mac and Bob's in Salem around midnight on uh, December, the morning of December 17th for the uh, the live Around the Nation podcast. I think that uh, basically is the way we're going to do that final podcast from here on out. But today was kind of like a live podcast. It's a little different when it's not as scripted as some of our more scripted ones. Do we sound less scripted today? I don't know. That's up to the reader, uh, readers, the listeners to hear. Can you tell uh, another channel? Uh, are we going to edit that and change readers into listeners? Do whatever you want. <laughs>